Happy New Year. So how have you been? How How is 2022 treating you? I mean, if today is any indication, I will not get any work done at all because teaching days are going to be so exhausting. I'm going to need the day afterwards to recover and prep rather than write. <laughs> My exercise physiology class is now double the size it was supposed to be. And wow. it's just me. No TAs. How big is double? Over 60. Yikes. Yeah. You're doing multiple guests testing, right? No tests. Kara doesn't do tests. I'm having them do grant proposals, but they have to work in a group of five or six because grant proposals are so often collaborative. And so instead of 60, I only have to read 10. That's how I told myself this was manageable. <laughs> So before we launch right into what we're doing today, I wanted to throw in a little advertisement. So you're involved in this because we started this thing, right? We did start this thing. We started three years ago, the Hackademics series. I actually still remember where I was when I proposed the series and title to you. I remember it perfectly. Didn't we go through a handful of titles? We did. And I remember being in the car while Aaron was driving and I was texting and he was annoyed with me because I was ignoring him and texting you about the series I did. Nice. <laughs> so our academic series, we went a year or a little bit more and thought we'd keep going because there are so many things that people don't get taught in grad school about how to succeed in academia. But we had such good response. People thought it was so important that we assembled a special issue of American Journal of Human Biology the paper edition should drop very soon, but all the articles from it, I think, have now been published. Everything is up. And we were asked to put together a webinar series, and I volunteered to put one together for our special issue. So this is a long way of me advertising that starting, this will be too late for this week, but I'm going to advertise it anyway. Starting this Thursday and then every week for the next three weeks after this one, there will be a free webinar through the American Association of Biological Anthropologists featuring eight sets of authors from our 10 articles. This week will be family work balance and mental health in the classroom. And then next week, you and your team. So everyone but Rebecca will be able to come. So my team includes Claudia Valegia, Tissa Lowen, Kendall Arslanian, Alexander Niklu, and well, Rebecca Gibson. Rebecca can't Gibson. Make it. Mark Kissel and Susan Bloom are the other half of next week. So we'll be sending out ads and all your social media and all that. And you will already know about it by the time you hear this because you will have been barraged by my onslaught of advertising. At any rate, that is coming up and we are super excited. But today, today, Kara, we were referred to our current interview. It's so awesome that our past guests are sending us new guests. Like when past guests send us, hey, I have a new book. Can I send you this book for free and you interview me? Or yeah. hey, we have this awesome person. Please interview them. Please keep doing that, people. It makes our lives so much easier. And we love hearing your suggestions. If, if they're getting value out of this, we want to give value back. So our guest today was recommended by Michael Gervin. And our guest is Dr. Helen Davis, who is a research associate and postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard University. Her research focuses on how compulsory formal schools have shaped the human mind as well as cognition across the life course. She also co-founded the One Pencil Project, which we will be talking to her about today, and that was founded in 2018, that focuses on scientific research that promotes authentic partnering, a commitment to the future 
future of participant communities and responsiveness to causes of inequality. So we're really excited today to talk not only about her research, but about this nonprofit, because that's a big lift for somebody who is not on the tenure track yet to be able to do all of the things all of the time. Welcome to the Saucers of Science. Happy New Year to you. Thank you. Happy New Year to you guys. So we always start the show the same way each time. Get to know a little bit about how, one, the science is made, but more importantly, how the scientist is made. So if you could tell us about your journey, how did you get into anthropology and why did you decide to pursue it as a career? I mean, I grew up in the borderlands of New Mexico and spent a lot of time really immersed in that culture. My, my grandparents were really involved in local politics and in community development organizations. And so I think just that in itself, probably being in such a rich cultural environment, probably influenced a lot. But I lived with my grandma and grandfather and, and my mother when I was growing up, and I was very big into reading Rainbow. So I actually think it was LeVar Burton who got me onto anthropology uh, in second grade. And um, he took all of the kids to Egypt to learn about Egyptology. And we went to the library and checked out those books. And that was sort of the beginning. So in high school, I knew I was going to study anthropology. I don't think I knew I was going to get a PhD. I didn't really know a lot about PhDs or anything like that. But I did know I wanted to go to college for it at the very least. So yeah, I don't know. I was reading Rainbow, I guess. It's like the power of public television. That's cool. That's a first for the yeah. show. LeVar Burton? No one has mentioned LeVar Burton. Yeah, we haven't had LeVar Burton. And we honestly, because of biological anthropology, we don't get like the Indiana Jones people or the Jurassic Park people for, for paleontology. We were very unique niche, I feel, when it comes to movies. So you studied with Elizabeth Cashdan, and now you're at Harvard. So tell us about that path. Sure. Like I said, I knew that I wanted to go to college to study anthropology, but I was pretty sure after that I would do something, work for the Foreign Service or do something for an NGO or, or something along those lines was kind of my thought at the time. And then I went to the University of Missouri to study anthropology. New Mexico had a, UNM had a great anthropology program at the time, but I wanted to get out of New Mexico because I, I thought I've got to see the world. So I went to the Center of America, <laughs> Missouri. Broad swaths of nothingness. Right. Yes. That's right. Yeah. I'm from Indiana, um, so I know. That Yeah, it was a very big, it was a big culture shock for me. But my senior year, we had a capstone seminar and Mark Flynn started sharing papers with us. And I had done cultural anthropology all through through college. And he shared a paper with me by Hilly Kaplan and Kim Hill and Magdalena Hurtado and Jane Lancaster. And I was so taken with it. And I talked to Mark Flynn about it a few times. And then after college, I had an internship in New York and then in Santa Fe. And I was interning for the Historic Preservation Division in Santa Fe. And I set up a meeting with Hilly Kaplan and went to talk to him and asked him about the paper. And we went back and forth for a while. And, and then he asked me in that meeting, actually, are you going to be happy? I think he thought it was really strange that I was in cultural anthropology and was so interested in this. And he asked me, are you going to be happy doing what you're doing in 30 years? Hmm. And I'd never thought about that or thought that far ahead. And I said, no, I don't think so. I don't know. Maybe I think really they just needed more field workers. <laughs> Somehow, <laughs> I think Hilly knew that I maybe wasn't taking the right path. And so we just asked and on reflection, I thought, oh, he's probably right. And there were these opportunities to volunteer for the project. I started collecting data and that's how I decided to apply to graduate school, actually. He didn't tell you, do this thing, right? Like, and I, I have moments like that I can remember too, where an advisor just asked me a question. They probably don't remember it like half an hour later, 
And 30 years later, I could still tell you like how many right. hours and days I puzzled on that and the life changes that I went through to try to answer the question for them that they'd already forgotten they asked me. So I don't know if mentors necessarily realize when they ask these pregnant questions, how significant they are. I think a lot of people do. And the way Helen was saying, I think that question was asked with a very particular goal in mind that maybe didn't have the outcome that was expected down the line. So it had a bigger impact maybe than they were thinking. I mean, I get like that. I'll ask that leading question that I know it's going to make them churn a little bit. That's the point. It was, no, it's definitely thought provoking. Obviously, I completely changed the entire trajectory of my life based on that question, but I'm certainly happy with it. But I, you know, I, I stumbled into that, to be honest. And it so, was just because of reading these papers towards the end of college. Your paper is about spatial cognition. And I know one of our questions, did you get into this? How did that experience in Bolivia kind of drive you into this desire to research cognition? I still collaborate loosely with the Chimane project, but since leaving grad school, I have started my own research program. And in grad school, I was particularly interested in abstract reasoning and how environmental conditions, right, sort of interact with population dynamics and are producing these really unique outcomes and shaping children's cognitive skill development. And so that was always in the forefront of my mind. And after graduate school, I ended up getting a postdoc at the University of Utah, where I worked with Karen Kramer and also Elizabeth Cashton. Mm -hmm. And Elizabeth was running a spatial cognition and navigation project. I started working with her and I approached it essentially more from the theory side, to be honest, but the interest in sort of the cultural changes and the effects of schooling came from my previous work and how children's day-to-day interactions and their experiences were shaping the cognitive skills that they were learning during middle childhood and adolescence. What would you say is your primary sort of research interest? Like, is it child development or where would you put yourself? You're trying to force her into a box. And we've talked so many times on the show about people not being in boxes and that creating really wonderful research. I mean, I think it is hard because I, I feel as though I'm really interested in how experiences during childhood and community shape children's cognitive skill sets. But I'm mm-hmm. also interested in how those experiences across the life course shape cognition across the life course. So I am interested in cognitive development, but I'm also interested in cognitive decline. So I don't want to pigeonhole myself and say, I just have a paper now that just um, is in press actually with Mike Gervin and Elizabeth Cashton looking at cognitive decline and spatial cognition in the Chimane. And I'll continue that when I go back to Namibia and Angola this year. And, and so really loosely, I'm just fascinated by the human brain and the evolution of the human brain. I'm fascinated by the interaction of our environment with culture and how culture plays off of these really distinct environmental conditions and, you know, and interacts in really unique ways to shape all of the cultural variation that we see today. So I think to answer a lot of these questions, we have to look across the life course and we have to look not just at kids and not just at the moment that kids go to school or they play outside, but how everything is shaped by culture as well within a lifetime and over generations. So from the moment a child is born, if they've been born into a community where caretakers have been schooled, how those caretakers interact with their children how they share information with their children, who children are learning from, when they're learning from individuals and how they're learning. This all sort of shapes, right, the cognitive skill sets that are important within a particular community. And I'm really fascinated in sort of how that carries across the life course. 
I think you are wonderfully driven by the questions rather than the direction of a particular field. And I, I think that's where really strong work comes out because it is very broad and that you can draw on a number of different disciplines. It also reminds me of Katie Sayers' work. And I'm not sure if you're familiar with her. She's a grad student with Dave Reichlin because she mm -hmm. looks at cognitive decline, but relates to kind of physical activity, which I can also see connecting to spatial understanding and things like that. So I could totally see you two coming up with some amazing collaborative work together to define some questions. And well, I think now we'll have to that since you've mentioned we it. So. We do. Uh, so as you mentioned before, you've worked with Chamani. We've had some other Chamani folks on the show before, but you have also worked with the Himba, which so I, I think a lot of our listeners are familiar with the Himba. And now correct me if I'm pronouncing this wrong, the Twa? Right, over Twa, the Twa. So that might be a population I had not heard of, the Twa population before. So I was wondering if you could maybe Tell us about the Twa, who you work with, and how you got involved. How did that even come about to work with this population? Yeah, of course. So the Ovitwa or the Twa, and sometimes they're called the Twe, uh, are also semi-nomadic, live in southern Angola, northern Namibia. They also speak a Bantu language, and the languages between the Twa and the Himba and the Chimba and Zimba are similar. They were truckers and did do hunting as well, but they've become slightly more settled and settled into pastoralism over the last 20 or 30 years. Initially, I started working with the Ovachua, the SCAN project with Elizabeth Ashton. And then so there was a really fascinating opportunity to expand the field site into Southern Angola, uh, into these sort of remote areas of Southern Angola that had been cut off during the Civil War. And the families of the Ovachua and Himba live on both sides and they go across and visit each other and meet and marry. But because of cattle, or in the case of the Twa, generally goats, they're not actually moving across the borders. And in Namibia, the system is built on the British and German educational systems, and they have access to schooling, but you can only go to school if you have a Namibian birth certificate. So there are all these things that sort of played into it. I ended up realizing we had this natural experiment that was set up before us, where we had the same cultural group living across this border across the Kunene River, and some of them had access to school. And so that is where we're at now. So it took me about two years to get that project in Angola up and running. It's pretty hard to get the permissions and visas to get a field site there, but we are now working in Angola as well. And I, I'm still working in some of the communities with the SCAN project and hoping actually to start collaborating more with Brooke Shelza and Sean all with their field site as well. But I am working with, I think, about 15, 20 communities in total on both wow. sides of the border. What you said is something a lot of people don't realize is that when you are setting up a new field site of how much front loading goes into right. that and how much effort before there are any quote unquote products that, you know, can come out of it, publications or anything. And that kind of work needs to be recognized. So applause and hats off to you. Oh. Okay, because it's a lot. It really, really is. Especially with your postdoctoral research, like that's a huge amount of effort for somebody who doesn't have the job yet, quote unquote. And it's really, really impressive and should be a massive draw for anyone that wants to hire you. I really agree with you. I mean, one of the things that really attracted me to feel immersive element to it and reading the older ethnographies and even a lot of the behavioral ecology or research and cultural evolution that came out over the last 20 years and how much time goes into developing these longitudinal or cross-cultural studies is enormous. But starting a fieldwork is really hard and it is time consuming. And we're coming into this place right now, I think, as a field with, there's now this interest in these other fields, psychology, other parts of social science that are getting really interested in cross-cultural research, but also produce a lot of product in short periods of time. 
And I think we're starting to feel the heat, you know, trying to keep up with that. And I think that, you know, there is a sweet spot. I mean, obviously, I don't think it is feasible anymore to go down and, and live for 10 years, you know, to write these massive ethnographies, which is you know, actually probably a shame in, in many ways. But there has to be a sweet spot between that if we want to sort of hold on, I think, to the integrity of our field. And I think there needs to be broader recognition in the field by like the gatekeepers for grants or, you know, anything else. Like maybe your publication record isn't great, but that's because you spent three, four, five years establishing this amazing field site. And that kind of thing needs to be taken into consideration because that's a massive amount of effort where you don't necessarily get physical things to physically show what you did in that time. The nice thing about having a field site, right, is that now once you get it up and running, then it's there and it's there as long as you want to keep investing time into it. So it's an enormous relief to have that going. And, you know, we finally got that up and running in 2017. So that was great. And then a technical little question for follow-ups. So you said the Trois have a German and British kind of education system that was implemented. When did that start? So how long has this actually been around? Namibia sort of moved into its own establishment of independence and away from colonial rule in the 90s. And the kids that we're working with right now really are the first full generation of kids who are going to school full-time. And so a lot of the kids, especially in these semi-nomadic groups or more remote areas, go to boarding schools, essentially. And so on Monday, Sunday or Monday, they're usually walking 15 to 20, maybe 30 kilometers to get to school. And they stay there until Friday. And then only then do they go back home. And obviously there are exceptions to this, you know, when cattle or goats or whatever the herds need work or seasonally, they will spend more or less time in school. So there still are decisions that have to be made about investing in sort of domestic work versus investing time in school. But in the communities where we were working, there was a really low percentage of adults who had any schooling exposure. And then it was almost 90% of kids had had a few years in schooling by the time we started working with the younger cohort. So Namibia has really put a lot of time and energy into improving school access and school quality over the last 15, 20 years. So speaking of kids in Namibia, the paper you sent us, and you, re you referenced it a second ago because your conclusions point towards that senescence paper that you say you've been working on, and I'm curious about that too. And my impression here is that you were testing whether there is an evolved gender differences or whether there are developmentally, ecologically sort of entrained gender differences. Is that an accurate reflection of your hypothesis? in this study? Right. So at the base of it, we were interested in how range size might be affecting navigational ability. And so the amount of space field. people would move around in on a regular basis? Right. So we think about how moving through space, how fundamentally important this is to all mammals, right? We have to navigate successfully through space to stay away from danger, to remember the location of events. And, you know, as humans become more cooperative, we're also having to remember places to meet up and spend time with individuals as we're sort of settling different ecologies all over the world. So space and navigating through space has always been really important. But there's a lot of work in industrialized societies and lots of work from ethnographies and other time allocation studies that really do show that men are spending a lot of time usually more time away outside of camp or outside of communities and have much larger ranges and so there has been a pretty strong argument for a long time for gender differences in spatial abilities and the ability to navigate. But the question really was, is this really a biological response that exists between men and women? Or is this something that might actually be responsive to environmental conditions or some combination of those two? 
And so, yeah, so anyway, that's basically the foundation of it or the base question. And there just is not a lot of research outside of industrialized populations that looks at this. And it's increasingly important. I mean, if we're interested in the evolution of childhood, sort of what kids are doing, where they're learning, how they're learning from their environments. Also, performance on spatial cognitive tasks is highly predictive of participation in STEM fields. So in industrialized populations, people are really interested in whether or not this is environmentally predicted or if there really are biological differences between individuals. So that was sort of the the seed that got this growing. What'd you find? Because your your findings are fascinating. Oh, well, thanks. Building up to this point, there had already been work done with the TWA and the HIMBA and between adult men and women, and they did find that there was a pretty substantial difference in gender difference in mobility, range size, and also performance on these spatial tasks. So that already existed among those adults. And then when I sort of came onto this project, I was onboarded, I had collected some initial data with SCAN with the Jumane, uh, as did Ben Trumbull, who looked at navigation with them as well. And we actually didn't find gender differences between men and women or boys and girls. And so that in itself was really interesting. And there's questions, you know, maybe the difficulty of navigating through a tropical forest dampens men's abilities to navigate, or maybe it forces women to have to navigate, whether or not the reality was that they were extremely successful at navigating to places. And so really, really, really high success rates at pointing to other locations, navigating to other locations. And there were no differences with age or with gender. And so I wanted to try this out with the Ovatois as well. And this other factor, effect of schooling and how schooling was changing children's lives. So instead of staying home, girls tend to stay home helping with these domestic tasks. They were now leaving and spending entire weeks away in other communities. And their range size was much larger. And we found that boys and girls, they were extremely precocious in their navigational skills. And there were no gender differences between boys and girls. And in fact, once this younger cohort was exposed to schooling, they were both outperforming adult women on the tasks and doing almost as well as adult men. And children were doing better on some of the more school-based or the small-scale spatial tasks like mental rotation. And so it was this really interesting example of how exposure to small doses of school, even in the short term, even this first-generation exposure, changes kids' day-to-day lives can have these really large impacts, so much so that kids are learning skill sets right from other individuals, other adults in direct learning environments that are fundamentally different from how they learn at home. And they're learning skill sets that some of their parents have, but not both. That was probably one of the things that I found to be the most interesting. And just thinking about how easily this cultural change, how much of an effect it had on spatial performance. I found myself actually thinking about how before GPS, I could learn a city in a day just by going out driving. But if I use GPS, I don't learn it at all. And my kids who are, I have triplet boys who are 18, two drive, one doesn't. The differences in spatial awareness and their mechanical aptitudes in general are completely different. They map very neatly onto what you're describing. It's blown my mind. It's really interesting, right? Because you said they're triplets. And Natural experiment of my own. That's right. I was just going to mention that. You should probably. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure you collect data on your kids already. But... <laughs> oh, that's why I had them. I had them in grad that's school. Right. So I could collect data along the way. Which one is the control, Chris? <laughs> Maybe you shouldn't answer that. I worry. <laughs> I almost did. I thought about it. I don't have a control. It's like having a favorite kid. 
<laughs> uh, so I could see like a really fun comparative study of this going on based on like what the school curriculum is and how different spatial tasks are maybe implemented within the classroom. Any thoughts on that or what that might lead to? I think that there are a lot of opportunities here. I mean, to be honest, this first study was with just kids, the Ovatois and Himba children in Namibia who had exposure to these sleepaway or boarding schools. But we also have kids that we can look at who, so first, just thinking about sort of the indirect effects of these cultural institutions, right, the actual time you have to navigate or walk to these schools or go out on your own. I think there's some really interesting opportunities there because we have kids that have to go very far distances to go to boarding schools and other who live very close. And so there are some opportunities there, but I think even more so, one of the things that obviously wasn't in this paper, though, it may have been mentioned briefly, but we did see among the Chimane, when I tested the Chimane children, that kids who spent more time in school and kids who did better on school-based tasks actually were showing decreased performance in navigational skills. And so they were actually spending less time running, jumping, climbing trees, and they were spending more time in school. And this is pretty amazing because the Chamonix kids go to school four or five hours a day, five days a week. And so, you know, it might be that people are better at some things or others, and they're self-selecting to do one thing or another. Or it might be that, you know, just having schooling and breaking up tasks, you know, maybe coming home and doing homework rather than running, jumping, climbing trees is starting to hit on your ability to navigate and spatial skills. So that's something that I think is going to be worth pursuing. I think also the findings from the study, I think, were interesting. But it is, you know, one of the caveats that we were looking at cohorts, so adults versus children. And so whether or not once these girls grow up and they start having children and they start doing more tasks within their communities and close to home, will the lack of gender difference between them persist? Or are we going to see that, you know, you have to be engaging? Is it a use it or lose it? And that's something that we don't know yet. So there is some opportunity to further explore that because in terms of cognitive decline and how you navigate across your life, we know that you have to keep engaging, right, with your environment. And so it'll be interesting to see whether or not you just have to put your kids out there to run and explore when they're kids and they'll be fine for the rest of their lives. Or if you have to create a culture for them to always want to go out with their GPS. (laughs) I want to ask you about One Pencil because that's an amazing project. Tell us this story about One Pencil, right? The name itself has a backstory. And I'd love to hear that as the introduction to this philanthropic project that is wrapped around your research. Sure. So One Pencil, the project itself was built out of my research, the longitudinal studies that I started doing on abstract reasoning and the effects of cultural institutions like schooling on kids' cognition and the development of abstract reasoning skills. And part of that project, one of the things that I would do in the short term was give school supplies to the communities where I was working. And I generally gave each kid a set number of pens and pencils and paper and, and one of the things that I was really fascinated with was sort of how school resources were affecting kids' outcomes. And I found in the longitudinal work that I was doing that quality of schooling and resources were all affecting kids' outcomes. So as I started this research project in Namibia and Angola as well, I was trying to give these same school supplies out to kids. And, and I realized there were a lot of kids that didn't have very many school supplies in, in both places. And At one point I was told, you know, you can actually only give one pencil because they're really hard to come by and they're very expensive. And 
knowing that I had the capacity to give school supplies and knowing what the outcomes were from the longitudinal studies and now seeing the same things in Namibia and Angola, I decided that I really wanted to create a program that wouldn't be dependent just on me and my research, but would actually be committed to long-term outcomes in my participant communities. So sort of centering around ethical engagement with participant communities and trying to find a way to link up research and sort of a shared commitment to future goals with communities. So creating some sort of inner interaction between the two consistently. So that was sort of the birth of one pencil project. And it started with school supplies. So the idea that every single year we would give every kid school supplies moving forward, come hell or high water, we were always going to give school supplies to kids. And it's since then grown. So each year that we've had this project ongoing, it's grown quite a bit. And we have now researchers from all of these countries. We're trying to create a template of ethical engagement with participant communities and try to move away from sort of a more, I guess, like colonial extraction model of research, right? And work with a model that actually has feedback and consistently interacts with participant communities to work towards and recognize right inequality and work towards shared goals in the future. So that was the reason that we started One Pencil. And yeah, like I said, we've been growing quite a bit every single year. Uh, we have now board members from all different field sites there. The Chimane Project has now actually just officially started collaborating with us and a lot of other individuals and community rights organizations in both places. So it, we are now going to be moving forward to actually collect research of our own or data of our own that's associated with the nonprofit under that umbrella and would work directly with communities and indigenous rights organizations on issues of education and health and child outcomes. Now, I noticed on the website, there's philanthropic aspects to that. Is there a way for listeners who might want to get involved to contact you and do so? Absolutely. The website, OnePencilProject.org, people can get on there and go through it. And our email address is info at OnePencilProject.org. And we love volunteers. Everything in the project is volunteer-based. The board members from Brooke to Joe Henrik to Michael Muthukrishna, everything that they do is volunteer basis. And, you know, we actually, the paper that we talked about today is the first publication that's been linked to One oh, Pencil. Cool. So looking at schooling outcomes, one of the co-authors on that paper actually is a One Pencil affiliate. And we are trying moving forward. So again, we are starting to apply for grant funding to work towards doing other research projects that are more focused on one pencil only and not dependent on outside grants and hoping that we can give folks an opportunity to get involved if they want to provide internship opportunities for students who might be interested, especially undergrads. I mean, I think anthropology is an enormously valuable field that we should be sharing. So I'm hoping that we can build on some opportunities for that as well. I think we agree. That's yes. <laughs> I think we agree. <laughs> We're also on Twitter and Facebook and I mean, all the things, LinkedIn and Good. Instagram. We want to help amplify all of that. And in my faculty retreat yesterday, we were just talking about putting together a list of things like internship opportunities, yeah, stuff like that, because those are exactly the type of things that our students who are in between, you know, going out and getting a job and trying to find what graduate career or whatever they might want to do, that's an ideal option. Because a lot of them don't want to do grad school, but they do want to get out in the world and be of service. So thank you for telling us about that. Thank you for doing that. 
And so you have putting together kind of grants for both the One Pencil Project and I'm sure as well as for your research, but what else is next for you? What do you have coming up? What do we have to look forward to? Well, I'm going back to the field in the spring and actually right now I've just been doing a, a lot of writing. I built, you know, this sort of model of longitudinal research project based on what I learned as a graduate student working with the Chimane project. And now that I've sort of created my own field site and then my own work with the Chimane, I've been collecting data over the last few years. And so now I'm actually just trying to get a lot of that product out. And I'll also be going back to the field. So that's going to be nice. I mean, you have a vital, vibrant, active field site with uh, great partnerships and collaborations, an all-star cast. We're fascinated about this. And like I said, we want to have you back. So let's ask our final question, which is taking us back to not just our well-rounded research, but our well-rounded researcher. You also must have a personal social life. You must. You must not. You're in academics. You probably don't. Yeah, you're shaking your head. But what do you do for fun? What do you like to do to, to wind down? I am a big hiker. I like to hike. Yeah. And I love backpacking. I think probably same with fieldwork. My, my favorite thing really is to kind of immerse myself and get as dirty as I can for a week or so and then come out and really drink some nice wine and have a nice dinner. So I like the juxtaposition of those two experiences. That um, sounds like a pretty ideal. Amazing. Anyway, yeah. Helen, it has been an absolute delight having you on the show today. Thank you Thank so much you for so taking much. the time.